Hello and welcome to Mavsplained, where every single day we break down a different topic. It could be news, it could be trend, it could be a little bit of Mavs history. That's what we're focusing on today. And joining me on this journey, now that we're about 12 hours removed from the afterglow of reliving the 2011 championship, we're here to talk about it again, is Mike Marshall. Babito, you bring in you bring in the big guns when you want to talk about the important stuff, don't you? Like the 2011 uh, just, playoff run. You're calling yourself a big gun. Yeah, I'm like the special guest that'll the guest appearance that'll pop up once a season. But you know this this episode is going to be good whenever uh, you know, like the guest appearance on Friends or uh, you know, someone crossover episode. Whenever you get somebody from a show on that network. That happens to just be in this crossover episode for this one moment. You know it's going to be a good one. If you're Lincoln Park, does that make me Jay Z? Or <laughs> sure, cool, sure thing, cool. Yeah. So, uh, so like I said, we're here today to talk about all things championship. Uh, Mike and I had a podcast. I don't know, maybe last week or the week before that about the Lakers series. Um, mm-hmm. That was more of like a, a four game romp. Uh, the Mavs just sort of frolicked through the second round, and things got a little more difficult in the conference finals. But then they got serious in the finals against LeBron, D. Wade, Chris Bosh, uh, and the Miami Heat, a rematch of 2006. And there were narratives and storylines abound that we all remember. And then also uh, one of the benefits of rewatching these games on Fox Sports we- uh, Southwest over the last couple of weeks is gotten to kind of refresh your memory maybe uh maybe learn something new that you didn't remember at all or maybe like see things differently now that you have the benefit of hindsight and retrospect and seeing how the league has evolved and things have changed since then especially LeBron's career uh most of all but I guess just off the top Mike I mean there's a lot of different things to talk about so uh as as you're the guest as you're uh as you're the big gun that I'm bringing in I guess I'll I'll cede the floor to you where do you want to take this thing right off the top well, I mean, from our perspective, it was different than almost anybody else would view it, even in the country, any other fandom. If you were just a fan of basketball, you didn't quite have the same um, groundwork laid that we had because five years earlier, it was the exact same team. It was the Miami Heat. It was Dwayne Wade. It was Shaq. It was that crew. Um, and now we're looking back at it. I'm like, okay, those Heat teams are gone. Uh, LeBron moved on. They were extremely top-heavy, uh, filled in the roster eventually, and you knew. I just didn't think the Heat were going to be around forever, and I didn't think they were. Now I don't feel they're as big a deal as they used to be, but that was like, that was next to Jordan quitting to play baseball of the decision, right? The decision, Dwayne Wade staying in Miami, recruiting Bosch and LeBron, and everyone just said, the league's over. Like basketball's over they broke basketball and this is when we used to do this we used to do this anoint people before they actually did anything um or we started doing that we used to have to like wait five years <laughs> like mj like five years in they were like nah i don't know if he's got it um but the second lebron said i'm taking my talents to south beach everyone that was a hype beast of the nba or a talking head anywhere just said this is over and so, number one, you have a target on your back. Um, and reading, um, what is it, Ian Thompson was the writer of... Uh, yep, The Soul of Basketball. We, yeah. Reading that is a very good precursor to this because it makes a lot of sense. When I, I just rewatched like all the mini-movies and the Road to the Finals thing uh, that the NBA did, which are awesome. All of them are incredible. Um, and 
just the emotions and the feelings of the time were were so different back then um and it makes a lot of sense when you watch game by game of how these swings can happen for the heat because they were just incredibly inconsistent everybody on the team was incredibly inconsistent besides Dwayne Wade uh during that series and you know everyone looks at LeBron because he's LeBron now but that was that was that was kind of baby Braun, um, and I don't feel like he was quite ready for that moment. I don't feel like he was should have been the one making all the speeches in the tunnel before they go out and play the games in the NBA Finals, like they showed every single game. Um, but he's the he said, "I'm the leader. I'm the guy here. Like follow me." And all the while, I'm looking over to their left and going. Yeah, well, Dwayne Wade's got a title and he scored 35 last game. We might want to let that guy lead a little bit. And going into this series, it was get him now because I don't think you'll be able to get him later in terms of the heat, right? Like they were super talented. They were three of the best players the league had seen at that time. LeBron, all time. Wade's probably up there around, you know, top 20, 30 player all time. And then Bosch was just an awesome, really awesome power forward and stretch big back then. Um, but you can't just throw that together and expect it to make like a really nice seven layer dip like immediately, right? It takes it takes a little this, a little that. They got to get to know each other. They got to figure out what defense they're going to run. They got to figure out who gets the shots in clutch time. Um, and they hadn't really done that yet. They, they weren't even tested that much um, throughout that entire season. But I knew if you didn't get them this time, if you didn't knock them off the block right now when they don't have everything figured out, you're not getting them next season. Once they add Shane uh, Battier and get a couple more veterans in the mix there, and the, as more time went along and the more they got to play together and kind of fill out their roster with veterans uh, here and there, it just wasn't going to be an option to get back, number one, for the Mavs and their own desperation of and the level of desperation for both these teams is interesting to me too. Cause I always look at that in a series, like who has to win this series or this game versus who needs to win this game. Right. Cause the Mavs were, if we don't win it this year, it's not happening. It's just not going to happen again. There was a lockout looming. Those guys are aging. J kid was what? 38. Um, Dirk, you know, was getting to that point of his career where he's still on that very, very high plateau. But the next year, his athleticism could have dropped a little bit, and it's he's a different player. So for the Heat, it was like, we need to get this one because otherwise we'll be embarrassed. For the Mavs, it was like, we need to get this one or it's never happening again. And that's the thing I keep remembering in every single game and how they went 4-5-6. Game 4-5-6 is so insane. Like, it just, the, the flip just... Someone switched it, right? It just, it just, it just went, and it was four, five, six. The Heat started doubting themselves. LeBron got it in his own head after that eight-point game he had, um, and it was toast. And it's, it's a fascinating psychological study to watch um, from our perspective, working for a team now and seeing what goes into these type of games. And we haven't been to a finals before necessarily together working with the Mavs, but. You know, going into a game like the storylines that are kind of like rumbling underneath, um, and it's just such a cool story. <laughs> like I can't, I can't over exaggerate it enough how cool it is. And beyond just the the simple desperation of 
like you said, if you want to beat the Heat, you better do it this year. But if you're the Mavs, if you don't do it this year, you're never even getting back. I mean, beyond that simple fact that just just drove the stakes so much higher than they already were, this was also kind of the first experiment of team trying to take down a super team. I mean, you had the mm-hmm. Celtics in, in 2007, 2008. They threw Garnett and Pierce and Ray Allen together, and it worked. But they already had kind of some some veterans on that team. I feel like the roster was like, you know, they had to trade a, seven guys for Garnett or whatever. But, I mean, they had a foundation of guys in place. Rondo and, you know, as much as everybody hates him, I mean, he was a very good player. And they had guys like Kendrick Perkins, James Posey, like guys that you could play. Um, the Heat were kind of, I mean, no disrespect to anybody, but like you said, they were kind of a three-man team. Yeah, um, they were incredibly and, flawed, man. Yeah, and at, at this point, you know, the closest we'd come to a super team since really the 80s was the Celtics in 2008. Uh, and they were, in in addition to their supporting cast, all those guys were already veterans, established players, experienced players. Uh, you got to remember LeBron was 25. Chris Bosh was like 26. D-Wade was 26, 27. I mean, these guys were not super veterans by this point. And then I guess the next closest was the Lakers of the, mm-hmm. the you know, the 2009, 2010, the, the back-to-back champions. And they were not a very deep team either. And you had the Mavs just dethrone them on the way to the championship. And so in the finals, it was kind of our first shot, our first glimpse of artificial super team versus like real sort of like natural they earned it team Mm -hmm. even though the Mavericks obviously made a ton of roster moves to get these guys it was a lot of trades and free agency and stuff these guys had not played together very long but uh it was kind of the first sort of showdown of winning the right way quote unquote versus kind of like skipping a few steps you know and slapping together a bunch of talent and so that added a bunch of intrigue too I mean it's very compelling to mm-hmm. think of this ultimate team sport of basketball is it possible to sort of skip the team part and just out talent people and right. Miami did that all the regular season it's very easy to win in the regular season talent is the king you know talent and and depth only if you get hurt but these guys are super freaks LeBron never gets hurt D-Wade never gets hurt uh so it was easy for them to make it through and then you know the the east was sort of shallow boston was their time was done d rose was at the peak of his powers but i don't think the rest of the bulls were ready yet and so the heat sort of just like arrived to the finals yeah. and uh they, they hadn't really faced a test yet and meanwhile the mavericks were over here like huffing and puffing just to get past portland in the first round so you had this sort of idea this collective idea certainly nationally that it was going to just be a coronation you know maybe gentlemen's Maybe six, but probably just five games. Uh, oh, yeah. LeBron would take care of business. D-Wade would, you know, double down and, and, and go up 2-0 on Dirk, and that would be it. And uh, it certainly looked that way in game one, and then things changed. But, you know, this is a very kind of long-winded way of arriving to the last thing you said about game four, five, six. The switch flipped, and the Mavs won the next three games. Miami was out-talenting them in the first three games. It was very difficult for Dallas to do anything and then you had some extraordinary schematic changes, uh, mm-hmm. some strategic shifts in the series that Rick Carlisle and those guys were able to pull off, and Miami just did not have a counter. They didn't have the depth or the personnel or the know-how to deal with J.J. Barea, of all people. And so, you know, the 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 adjustments and, and the coaching, and, you know, Rick Carlisle was a veteran by then. Eric Spolstra was in his first season. I mean, that's another thing that we don't really talk about a lot. So... There were so many different factors at play that made this 
one of the juiciest finals matchups ever, uh, in mm-hmm. addition to just our own personal attachment to one of the teams involved. Yeah, the Heat really had a Frankenstein roster at that point, right? I mean, it was even in all these games except for game six, it's Mike Bibby starting at point guard, Joel Anthony starting at center. Um, no disrespect to those guys in their careers, but they're, they have no business starting a finals game in 2011. They just, they just don't. It's just how their, how their roster was constructed. And all the while we're looking over there going, okay, you got Bibby. I got kid. You got Tyson Chandler or we got Tyson Chandler. You got Joel Anthony. Like our team is deeper. We play our brand of basketball stronger than you do. And we can play about just about every, every different way. Which, looking back at it now, on looking back at the pace that these games happened at, um, the three-point shooting, like we talked about with the Lakers series, um, the Heat were a little bit more evolved into, they at least had some three-point shooters, and Bibby Chalmers, Mike Miller, um, but they weren't there yet. Like, if we're moving the ball like we can move the ball and shooting like we shoot, they don't touch us. And a couple of those games that happened, right? Um, But we... Played a little bit of math ball when we could. The thing about the Heat, which I don't think I'd ever seen this in a team prior to this. Um, maybe that 2006 Heat team, I don't know. But I, I just don't remember seeing it, watching a team that's playing the Mavs. And every time they'd force a turnover or have a big play, it would just feel like it was 10 points. It felt like their run-out dunks were more th- worth more than two points. And they would just hit you in waves, man. Just Dwayne Wade had this ability to just hit you with two minutes of basketball that you'd, like, never seen before. With his ath- athleticism, his finesse, his around-the-rim. Dude, he was one of the rare dudes that would, could block a shot on one end, run down, give you the craziest dunk you've ever seen, and in the next possession steal a pass and knock down a three like he just he had it all man he was he was an exceptional player at this time in his career and he had some crazy games but late late in games it was LeBron getting forced into areas of the court that he didn't want to go and the Mavs were like yeah shoot it big boy prove prove that you're the man prove that the decision was worth it prove you're not embarrassed over this last year and LeBron just dude that was Honestly, for a dude that we're going to rank in the top three or four or five all-time in the NBA history, this is the worst finals that a top five player in league history has probably ever had. Probably, without looking at it. I mean, it's it's tough to um, it's tough to imagine any really elite player having the kind of sort of depressed numbers that LeBron did. He just he couldn't really score. Now he did have a triple double in yeah. game five, 17, 10, and 10, and that's nothing to scoff at. But, I mean, to I, I, not really to his defense, but Miami hadn't really caught up. So we, we've already sort of painted the picture of this playoffs coming at a time when the NBA was sort of on the brink of an evolution. The Mavericks were already there. Everybody else was kind of catching up, and they were about to evolve. And if you fast forward a year after this series when Miami's playing OKC in the finals, and especially the year after, 2013, that Miami Heat team was, they were invincible. I mean, the Spurs probably should have won that finals, uh, but Miami was incredible, man, with Battier and Ray Allen. But 
what you had, the shift that Miami made, was just removing Joel Anthony and Eric Dampier from the rotation. Haslam gets less minutes, and it's LeBron at the four and Bosch at the five with Battier, Wade, Ray Allen, uh, Chalmers, Norris Cole was out there. You had a lot of shooting, a lot of spacing, a lot of athletes, longer guys that could switch on defense. Miami sort of popularized the pace and space strategy, or I guess the, the, the moniker for playing four out, five out basketball. But if you go back and watch these finals games, I mean, if LeBron takes a ball screen, there's no space because they got they got a post guy and Bosch on the inside of the three-point line. And Wade was never really much of a three-point shooter. He would take them, but he wouldn't spot up necessarily. So there's just not many driving lanes for LeBron. And so that gave the Mavs the freedom to take an extra step back off of him and just say, we'll give you 20-foot pull-ups because we're not worried about you driving past us. There's nowhere for you to go, you know. We got Tyson right under the rim. We got Dirk right under the rim, and they can just park it there because your guys aren't going anywhere. And and that really sort of liberated Sean Marion, even Jason Kidd at times, and obviously J.J. Barea and a couple uh, iconic photos to play LeBron almost however they wanted and, and take one thing away, either take his drive away or, you know, they, they uh, figured out, I think the Spurs sort of figured out that, uh, LeBron liked pulling up. I think going left, he liked pulling up. Going right, he liked going all the way to the rim. And so you can play him to a hand and just take whatever it is away. And uh, that was I, I, that was that was a very sort of uh, I don't know under discussed thing. Everybody viewed it as just LeBron choking, but mm-hmm. uh, just the, the Miami system had not caught up to his strengths yet, and right. uh, their personnel did not match his playing style. It was really like you plucked him off the Cavs and placed him in Miami. And he just was not the, – the team wasn't ready for him yet completely. Yeah, it was It was almost like it was still Dwayne Wade's team and you just kind of like threw LeBron in there and said, you figure it out, you fit into that. Because, I mean, Wade's a very cerebral player and very smart and knows how to navigate offensive basketball. But, I mean, Dwayne Wade's going to do what Dwayne Wade does in a basketball game. He's getting to the rack. Like, that's kind of that's how it works. So to throw LeBron in there and just be like – Fit in here, buddy, that always wants the ball and always wants to make every assist and wants to create every shot. And I think the Mavs really, after a while, you started to notice they were trying to force him basically pull up flat-footed going left from some some distance. And threes, now that's his shot, which is funny. That little, that little hezzy that he has, and he brings his shoulder up and... Um, like that's uh, that's LeBron's move now. Back then it was not. You get him low and going left. You get his shoulders turned away from the basket a little bit and ask him to just take a step back on him, let him shoot. And they did it repeatedly. He did not deliver. Um, and one of the other things I completely forgot about before I started rewatching all these is they had so many former Mavs on that Heat team. Like Damp, I completely forgot Damp was on that team. Stackhouse was there. Like Stackhouse didn't play in the finals, but Stackhouse was there, um, and just the the inner Howard was uh, yeah yeah I think he was still playing at the time. He might have been yeah, coaching, he was. but he was there too. He was still playing, and he was still on the roster the next year. Uh, whenever they they won, and that was his first title. Um, and so once you get to the finals, once you okay, you go through Portland, you go through uh, the Lakers, you go through uh, OKC. It was already like the coolest um, playoff run or Mavericks memories that I've 
it, it was just like already a number one sport experience for me. Um, and then you get there and you're playing the heat and no matter what happened, I kind of felt like we're playing with house money, right? Cause LeBron had invited the pressure with saying they're going to win seven, eight, nine championships. He'd invited the pressure with the decision and trying to basically upstage the rest of basketball, whether he knew it or not at the time. He thought he was just doing something fun and something for the boys and girls club, but that's not how the rest of basketball saw that. Sorry. Um, And so at that point, I'm like, besides the desperation of this is our last shot, all of the other external and internal pressure is on the heat to prove that this Frankenstein roster can be good enough with these elite, elite players of Bosch, Wade, and LeBron. And so when game one happened, I was like, yeah, they needed that. Like the Heat really needed that game to show everybody that they were they were good enough and that we're still to be feared. We're, we're, the, we're the top of the league. It maintained that sort of sense of inevitability. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Dirk you know, ruptures or sprains a tendon in his non-shooting hand. Um, it was the first time the Mavs had trailed a series um, in that entire playoffs. Um, and it was just, no matter what happened in this series or once once it became the Heat, I wanted us to beat them in the most gut-wrenching fashion ever. Like, I didn't care if we were down 0-2. I was like, you know what? It'll make a more fun story. Because they so did this. Game two was really your jam then. Yeah, game two was that down 15. I'm like, oh, that's a little bit too much, guys. <laughs> like, what are we doing here? <laughs> We're selling this a little bit too much. Like, I, I, wanted, I wanted the Heat to be up like three games and just went four straight on them and just rip their hearts <laughs> out of their chest and just make it the most epic. Like, you know what? We haven't forgotten about 2006. Um, and you know, you don't do that on purpose, obviously you try to win every game, but it's just like, I never felt worried. I thought if we're going to do this, you know, it's going to take some incredible performances and just like the most like fortitude, um, internally in that locker room that we've ever seen anyway. So, you know what? Take, take game one, take a 15 point lead in game two. Why not? Whatever you want, bud. We're still we're still going to make you play 48 minutes. We're going to make you focus longer than you ever have. I know you think every time you dunk the ball it's worth 20 points. You know what? It's not. We're going to out Matthew too. Um and and game 2 happened, man. It was it's a 4-minute scoring drought for the Mavs in the third quarter. And the Heat had one of their waves and they're up by 15. Um and it, then it that's that's the defining run of these finals, as weird as it sounds. Um, JJ in Game Five, we can talk about that in a minute and what happened there. But end of Game Two, man, Dirk just said no, not happening. They were, they were finally able to get stops, and virtually that entire run, obviously almost the entire run, came off misses because the Mavs scored what they went on a seventeen to two run, twenty to two run to take the 22, lead. Twenty two, yeah. Um, Miami just kept missing shots. The Mavs were forcing a couple turnovers, but they were forcing a lot of jump shots. LeBron missed one layup, but for the most part, it was like miss three, miss three, miss jumper, miss jumper. And uh, Dallas was just getting out and running. 
And for so much of that series, like virtually all of game one and for most of game two and really against most of the other teams too. I mean, the Mavs-Lakers series is very slow-paced. Um, Dallas really likes to control the tempo. Even now, they do. I mean, you don't see Luka getting out and running. I mean, this is something that is sort of a system thing, but in game two, down 15, you don't really have the time to do that. And so you'd give the ball to Jason Kidd or especially Jason Terry, and you'd just say, go. And the Mavs kept running this double drag screen, the 77 play that they still run all the time with uh, Dirk and Tyson screening for Jet. And so many things can come out of that. You had Dirk fading to the corner, Jet attacking the lane, kicking it out to Kid for three, swinging it to Dirk, who would swing it to Kid. You could rescreen, and then ultimately it peaked with that that Dirk spot up three to take the lead. But they were just playing. They they stopped like, mm-hmm. r- you know, r- Rick sort of like took his hands off the reins and were just like, yep. you guys just go make it happen. And they were able to do it. And that was like the most, probably the most beautiful thing of it all was that. They were earning their stops, and then they were taking it right at Miami and making them pay quickly, and and not mm-hmm. not letting them get set. And uh, that was a huge reason why they were able to to get back in that game. Yeah, this is like probably the first time that a theory that I look at every single game now kind of came into my head, which is if you make that other team, if you make a team play at your pace, and you're smarter and you're better decision making team, it's almost like. In the NFL, if you make the defensive linemen, like, if you run and hurry up and you make the defensive linemen stay in their stance for, like, 15 seconds, dude, they are not coming off the ball with any with any fire. So if you're going to make them defend just nonstop drag screens back and forth and Tyson pick and rolls for 20 seconds and wear their legs out and keep them in a defensive stance and wear them out whenever you have the ball, like, that takes a toll at the end of the game, right? That's just something that you're just com- constantly zapping their energy. And their offensive possessions are, a lot of times, breakaways or just open dunks, which is fine. But you don't take that to heart. You don't take that like you got beat, right? If someone picks your pocket and takes off the other way and scores, you're like, ah, oh, man, damn, that sucks. But if someone just grinds you into dust 20 seconds at a time, man, you you feel defeated, um, because it's like a back and forth jab, 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 jab fight until someone knocks you out. And I think that's what Rick was trying to do throughout this series is we're the better ball movement team. We're the be- better decision makers. We're going to make them defend our decisions for 20 seconds at a time. We're going to run a really low pace. Some of these games are like 85 possessions. Um, and a lot of these games, neither team scored 90. So it turned into a defensive battle. But I think what the Mavs forgot in game one and through three quarters of game two is that we are an awesome offensive team and we can shoot the piss out of the basketball when we want to, when we run our offense well. And, you know, it's almost like when you go against Wade, Bosch, and, and LeBron, you feel like you have to do something outside of yourself defensively. Like you have to do something that you've never done before. Like you gotta you gotta take charges or you gotta pick the ball off or you gotta you gotta do things that just is outside of your normal defense and once they realize like, you know what? If we play our game, if we play our normal what our box score was from a regular season game and they play theirs, you know, we're gonna beat them. Because we're gonna have two more points into the game because we shoot better from three and we move the ball better. Um and once they realize like we can score points in bunches too. He were in trouble. They were in deep trouble at the end of game two. 
they figured out that the ball can move faster than people. Yep. And and that was that was part of the reason that JJ came in the starting lineup after they lost game three is the Mavs are just really having a hard time breaking them down in the half court. And when you mm-hmm. get part of part of the, the 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 troubling side of playing the game at your pace, playing this very slow down, grinded out pace is Miami had a lot of athletes on that team and Dallas just could not consistently between Jay Kidd and Jet, just the two of them could not consistently penetrate and attack the lane and kick it out to Dirk or lob it up to Tyson. And so you had to work very, very hard to earn that sort of thing. Then you finally just make a little tweak, just JJ instead of Deshaun Stevenson. And suddenly you have a cat quick guy that can get in the lane. Mike Bibby cannot stay in front of JJ. And you don't necessarily want to put weight on JJ because then he's having to try really hard. I mean, just he's having to chase him around all game. So you have this little energizer bunny at point guard, and then you're able to bring Jed in off the bench, which gives you even more speed. And that really opened things up for them. And so they had to earn it. I mean, they had they had seven and a half minutes of basketball nirvana in game two. But really outside of that, in game one and, and for three and a half quarters of game two, and for a lot of game three, they just could not. No, nothing was easy. It was Zaza Pachulia, yeah. man. Nothing easy. And, and, and they finally were like, okay, we got to do this. I mean, it's it's – it's winner go home. We're down two one, and uh, I gotta say, after they lost game three, I was like, man, all of the wind that was in my in my sails mm-hmm. after game two was blown out right away. Yeah, um, Dirk. You was had that great, card but... where you knew you could overcome any deficit that was like a realistic deficit, twenty plus points. I'm gonna be like, uh, I don't know about that one, but you had that card always in your back pocket, right? That we can overcome anything that they throw at us. And the funny thing, the number one thing that shows me like the difference in desperation and difference in urgency and we got to have this thing is that the Mavs were down 2-1 and they throw JJ in there, right? Because they knew going down 3-1 was just, it's not an option. Um, The Heat, on the other hand, didn't start Chalmers over Bibby until it was elimination game. That was game six. So with the Heat, their mindset is always like, oh, that sucked, but we'll see you next year. For the Mavs, it's like, that sucks, and I'm going to wear this the rest of my life that I did not deliver in the finals. That's different motivation. That's a totally different story. But so game game four, J.J. starts. They pull Deshaun, um, and Deshaun had a good game off the bench that game. I think he had 11 or 12 points. He led the team in threes made in that series. Yeah, he was, he was awesome, man. Um, so J.J. starts. This is the Dirk flu game. Um, did they do the cough in the hallway thing prior to that game? That was after game four. That was that was after shoot around four. or like the day before practice day of game five. Okay. So the Mavs, I mean, the Mavs still, they were down nine at one point. Um, Dirk was awful through three quarters. Um, I don't know if it was after, I think it was after game three. Uh, I saw a, a quote from Jet earlier, an interview with him where he said, you know, Dirk basically called Jet out um, and said, I need more clutch shots out of Jet um, if we're going to win this thing. In game four, Dirk has 10 in the fourth. Jet has eight in the fourth. um, And LeBron scores eight total. Eight points in game four of the NBA Finals. And... Game four is ours, man. We're right back in it. And it's, you should have never let us up off the mat. Like, you should have you put your foot on our head because we're coming for you. 
And it was a it was a very close game too. I mean, Dirk yeah. had that layup with what fourteen point nine left, I think, to put Dallas mm-hmm. up three. It could have gone either way. Dallas had to fight back, like you said, to take the lead. But kind of the big adjustment in that game. I don't know if it was because of Dirk was sick or because JJ just worked real well with Tyson. You think of JJ and Dirk, you think of the two man game together. But in game four, it was a lot of Tyson screening mm-hmm. for JJ, which kind of worked to the Mavs' advantage because not only do you, does it leave Dirk as a spot-up guy, so Bosch has to respect him or Haslam has to respect him, but also it puts JJ in a position where he can get around the big. I mean, he could beat mm-hmm. Bosch or Anthony or Haslam off the dribble, no problem. And even though his numbers, his individual numbers might not have been great, I think he only had like eight points or ten points or something in game four, he was still able to get to the rim, basically whenever he wanted. And if, if you're able to turn – J.J. and Tyson against Bibby and whoever into a two-man game, you do it every time because oh, yeah. that's going to that's gonna allow everybody to, to do a bunch of stuff. And I think Tyson had a really big game in game four, and uh, they were just they were much they were much better. Even though they only scored 86 points, Dirk was like six for 19. If he just has a normal yeah. game, then they're easily in the 90s pushing 100. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it would have been a much more comfortable win, but um, – that that the first game of that adjustment really paid off and uh, obviously carried over to to what was to come. But in between game four and game five, you had, and and I know that like everybody just likes to make fun of it because it looks really bad now that you lost. <laughs> but just in general, the LeBron and Wade coughing thing on camera, like. I love LeBron the player now, and I've free, I've whatever. Not that my forgiveness means anything, but like I don't care about the decision anymore or any of that stuff. It's all he was a kid. Everybody grows up and matures and everything. But no part of me will ever not think that the coughing thing was like the lamest thing in sports history, and yeah. uh, it adds. It will ever add. It will forever add so much extra joy Mm -hmm. uh that that the Mavs were able to win because I mean I was thinking about this the other day watching the last dance next week is uh gonna be the the flu game in 97 against the Jazz and I think man that game is held up as like the most heroic performance in NBA history and 15 years after that you have almost the same exact thing happen to somebody else, but he's a European guy, and you have two of the five best players on earth just making fun of him for it. And I'm just like, what? Why? What's the difference between? I mean, wh- yeah, why? he just kicked How your ass. Situation? Yeah, he just kicked and, your ass, and you're just like openly disrespecting him. And you know, every time you walk into this arena, you're on camera, like you know, you did it for intention, and that was just. I mean, I think LeBron would they, would was... They do, would they have done the same thing to Michael Jordan? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, Le- no. LeBron was already in his head, and I think that guy just had, like, a really long year that year. Like, I can't imagine, like, how much second-guessing and just, like, oh, my God, what did I do? And just kind of like, ha-ha, yeah, man, we're doing great. Oh, my God, what did I do? Um, like, every <laughs> like every other month. Um, but then when Wade did that, and LeBron laughed at him. I was like, "No, see, that's the real leader in this in this locker room. Wade's the real do, the real voice of the Heat, and he just disrespected the greatest player in basketball right now. Like that's the dumbest thing you could possibly do. And beyond that, he disrespected the game. He disrespected yeah. the spirit of competition. Like there is no redeeming 
aspect to what he did whatsoever. That's like if whenever he leaves in game five with his hip contusion thing after Cardinal bodies him, if if someone just like walks around like they're limping like in a walker or something and made fun of him, like what is that? Um, One thing I forgot to mention that is so crucial in all this, in this finals, and the reason why people don't remember Peja's great first three rounds of the playoffs is because Peja was largely unplayable in the finals. Like, he played 14 minutes game one, I think, and he was bad. He just couldn't get his shots. And, I mean, when you throw him out there against Wade and LeBron, like, who's he guarding? Yeah, and um, it's tough. It's Yeah. It's tough. He just, he just, the matchup just did not fit Peja's skill set. And for, you know, 12 wins prior to that, a lot of the trick that they could pull out of their bag, uh, the big dog that they could pull out of their golf bag was, okay, I'm going to put Peja in there for six minutes. He's going to knock down 12 points and we're going to be up again. And they didn't have that. And so you got to figure out new ways. And JJ was that, that new way, right? Of, okay, we don't need a guy that can, if you can bomb from the outside, but you can't defend anybody. And Peja wasn't even knocking down threes in the finals um, in the minutes he did play. If you can bomb from outside, but you can't defend anybody, and you just kind of get cooked by Wade and LeBron, you can't play. But if you can get into the lane and make their defense scramble in a way that no one else on this team can, yeah, you're starting. You're, I need you in there every minute that you can play effectively. And that's why and, JJ and Jason went in there. Kidd, sorry, Jason Kidd's defensive ability to – guard Wade yeah. allowed JJ to enter the starting lineup because you could put him on Bibby no problem now if uh-huh. if if it was Wade and you know a slightly more dynamic guard or something then you might not have had that freedom you would have needed Stevenson's defense but because mm-hmm. you know Miami was again no disrespect Mike Bibby was an awesome player and he was a huge reason why the Kings beat the Mavs in the playoffs a couple times but um you know Miami was starting two sort of like relative non-factors on offense yeah. And that allowed the Mavs to really do whatever they wanted, uh, yep. personnel-wise. Well, let Tyson help off, right, and create that wall that Rick always talked about. Um, and then it allowed whoever was playing on Mike Bibby to either switch up and down the lineup. And Kid would go up on Wade, and and Kid was older, but dude, that guy was in the right spot defensively, like always. He was very underrated defensively at this time. Quick and career. strong hands too. Yeah. He was he was awesome. He would slide up the lineup and guard bigger guys. And then one of the things I didn't realize until you know putting together some of these these box scores and stuff is Sean Marion had an awesome series. Like Tricks was awesome. Like I if I if you would have asked me before rewatching this and relooking up these box scores, like what was Trix's like best line of these playoffs, I'd be like, uh, you know, probably like fourteen points, seven assists, something like that. And dude had, what, a couple 20-point games. Um, game four, whenever Dirk wasn't really feeling it, the flu game, Trix was awesome. Um, and he scored whenever Dirk wasn't and just kind of kept them afloat. Um, and had a couple just, like, straight-up FU plays that were just like, who is this guy? Like, is this? did we just get Phoenix Sean Marion real quick? Because he's taking people off the dribble, doing weird spins in the lane and just teardropping stuff. And... He he was still so stinking good at that time and played with such desperation desperation defensively and just gave him some stuff that they thought they could hide like their third or fourth best defender on him and he was like, No, I'm still Sean Marion. 
Like, I'm still way better than whoever you're going to put on me. Um, and then game five uh, was just a bloodbath from the three-point line. Um, it was a great game, man. That's yeah. some That's some great basketball. Dude, they shot, what, 70% from three almost. Um, Wade, like I said, bangs his hip into Cardinal. Oh, and Cardinal takes that charge. I don't know if they called it a block or a charge, but Wade leaves for a few minutes. Isn't quite right the rest of that game. JJ in the third quarter just starts nuking them. Like just, you know, prodding, 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 coming off the screen, prodding again, prodding again. You know what? Whatever. We'll knock down this three. Did that like five times in the second half of game five. He just tore them up, dude. They had nobody that could defend JJ because they weren't going to commit Wade or, or LeBron to him. Um, and even if they did, like he's probably quicker than those dudes. Um, and they just had no answer for JJ and we just kicked the crap out of him in game five. And after that, it was like, yeah, we found it, man. We found there's a big target on Mike Bibby. There's a big target on Joel Anthony and we're going to force LeBron to shoot. And you know what? Dwayne Wade dropped 50. See if I care. And Dirk had it going too in that game. He shot nine of 18 or 10 of 19 or something from the field. And, and that kind of lets you think like, man, if he, was healthy in game four. I mean, you saw how much easier the offense came to them whenever JJ was in there with Kidd and with Dirk and Tyson. They just had so much more dynamic, sort of a, a more dynamic presence on the perimeter. And then Marion was sort of filling in the cracks everywhere, doing a little bit of everything. Now that that group had a lot of cohesion. And uh, when Dirk finally had it going, they scored 112. I mean, they hadn't yeah. broken. I think the most they'd scored was the 95 that they scored in game two. And even that was... 23 points or 22 points in about seven minutes otherwise mm-hmm. it was a very low scoring performance by them in, in all three games but uh you introduce a little bit of chaos into the no. lineup and suddenly everything sort of changes but yeah, every Rick time the- over there yelling flow like i'm watching these like highlights and you know every time they show rick they're in this the game four five six he's just yelling flow the flow offense do whatever you want jj or jason kidd yeah, because you, you you have to keep it a little bit of ran, a, a little bit random. You know, mm-hmm. you can't be predictable. You can't do the same thing too many times because, you know, for as for as not ready as LeBron may have been or may not have been uh, to carry things offensively, he was ready defensively. And Wade was there defensively, and Bosch was a very good defender. And Haslam, Haslam was really good work. back then. Yeah, he, for for all the nice things people said about Nick Collison as Dirk was averaging thirty <laughs> in the conference finals, yeah. Haslam deserves way more credit because he was yeah. really feisty and tenacious. Um, and all of those guys were so smart too. I mean, they were a really really good defensive team considering it was their first season playing together. And so if you run, just like in game two, if you run these real slow set plays, Miami's going to be able to sniff it out easily. Mm-hmm. And they'll jump passing lanes, kick it out, you know, pass, pass, dunk, and you'll be down 10 before you know it. But if you just say, hey, Hall of Fame point guard Jason Kidd, dribble it up the floor and do whatever you want, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, just sort of freelance every single time, you, you never know how to defend it. And then all of a sudden you start, like, trying to cheat, and then you leave guys open – and yep. then bang, Jason Terry hits you with the three, or Dirk hits you with the three, or uh, you, you know that's that's whenever they really blow things open. Is whenever you start guessing, whenever you're trying to figure it out, whenever you're trying to cheat them, uh, whenever you're trying to predict what comes next, because there is no prediction. It's all read and react, the flow mm-hmm. offense, and and that's what makes it such a difficult system to defend. Yeah, and one of the things that 
makes Dirk so special in terms of like coaching around him and what players you need to put around him and how you run a how you use those 24 seconds you have on the offensive end is number one he was just like a little bit better than everybody else that had ever came before him and at his size at everything ball handling running the court shooting from three um post play but the thing I always noticed um and this probably started a couple years before 2011 um is You'd watch these possessions, and for me, every time I watch a possession, like I'm tr- trying to see like what the initial action is, what the goal of this possession is, um, and you have enough time to run a pick, run another pick. What are you trying to do? And I always had this moment in a possession when I can notice this ain't working. <laughs> like if 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 it does get to that point, I'm always like pull the parachute guy. I'm always like. Good God, just do something. Just do anything. Someone start running back on defense already. Yeah, because yes, this, is, yes. this is going bad. Yeah, just kick the ball into the stands and go play defense because <laughs> this is going to cause a turnover the other way. And whenever Dirk's on your team and he's not having to dribble the ball this whole 20 seconds plus, you can just, if you can get the ball to him with three plus seconds left, he can get a plus shot from anywhere in the court. Because of his size and the angles that he plays at with his fadeaway. And that's a tool that almost nobody in the league has been able to replicate. Or ever has been able to do before him. It's, hey, you're seven foot. I'm just going to give you this ball. Shoot a fadeaway with three seconds left. You're going to knock it down 45% of the time. That's awesome. Thank you for saving this possession in which we just effed around for 20 seconds and made a really crappy offensive decisions. And you just saved us from that. And that's the one of the greatest secrets to his success that I've ever seen um, that always sticks in my mind is you don't have to be good at offense when he's on your team. Like a lot, you don't, you don't have to be consistently awesome at offense. You can have 10 bad possessions a game that you're just like, here you go, buddy, do whatever you want. And they obviously wrote it to a title and wrote it to sixth all-time in scoring. And it really is as simple as just giving the ball. Yeah. I mean, that it just balanced the floor in such a way that if he gets doubled, he'll sense where it's coming from. And that, that was another big element of the, the entire finals run, but especially against the Heat because, you know, Haslam was good enough to guard him one-on-one. They wouldn't double him instantly. They would, they'd send a, a little, like, you know, sort of token mm-hmm. pressure his way, but they'd really come at him if he put the ball on the floor. And yeah. they were physical, and, you know, it's the finals, so they can get away with a lot of chippy stuff. And that's whenever younger Dirk got himself in trouble against the Warriors you know you had Steven Jackson coming well where's he coming from I don't know where the pressure is where where's my open guy but by then he was such a developed uh complete offensive player that that was no longer an issue I mean this Mm -hmm. you could send three guys his way and he'd still make the right play because he's just seen it all you know he's Peyton Manning at that stage of his career he just thinks at a different level and uh nothing surprises him nothing is new and he's just that's like the ultimate cheat code yeah and i mean if you watch all those highlights i mean there's a there's three or four plays that are like the most important plays of that of that series and left-handed layup to tie it at 98 game two is humongous obviously um i think there's another layup in that game that's left-handed and every time well, the, the lefty layup was the, a game winner with three and a half yeah. seconds left that's your latest game winner in a finals as, as far back as basketball references database goes wow. by the way but all those all those clutch layups that he had. Number one, he's just cooking Chris Bosh because I don't know if Bosh is like playing on his toes, assuming he's going to get him with the fade. 
But a couple of times he'll, you know, he'll get in his kind of like fade position and like shuffle his feet and he's already around Bosch. And it's like, what are you playing? But then every single one of those layups, there's a second defender running a full speed. Usually it's, 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 uh, Udonis. Usually it's Haslam flying from the opposite side to try and get the ball. And he just, you know, just, you just get out physical Dirk seven foot. You're six ten. You probably don't have a great wingspan. Udonis is a great player, but he's just like, you know, he doesn't have a 40 inch vertical. You're just not going to do anything about it. And every highlight, there's a second defender just flying at Dirk. And yeah, it's cause he's, you know, not Michael Jordan fast or anything, but, um, they, they played extremely good defense. That was the secret of that heat team is there's flash and there's pizzazz and there's, you know, all this stuff that they, all this hype that they had because they had like a freaking carnival when all of them signed. But the secret of that heat team is Spolstra could coach up that damn defense, man. And after that lefty game winner in game two, there were no more surprises on that front. And so Miami mm-hmm. could sit on the layup and, and really force him to take those heavily contested fadeaways. And so in game four, there's 15 seconds left on the clock. The Mavs have the ball. Dirk attacks early. And, you know, there's still eight or ten seconds left on the shot clock. And in the moment, even Jeff Van Gundy is going, well, he's going too early. As he's driving to the rim, like, to win a finals game, that's the call, which is sort of like whatever. But anyway, he Uh. he did go early. But that's why if he would have waited until the the time when you're supposed to go, Hazem wouldn't have let him get by him. Mm-hmm. And if he did, that would have given D-Wade enough time to get all the way across the lane and block that shot. But if you go back and watch that replay, Dirk is facing the other end of the floor, looking at the shot clock, and then turns around and basically in one fluid motion, turns around and goes, dribbles one time, gets to the rim, shuffles and lays it in. And that did not give Wade enough time to cover the 20 feet he needed to get there mm-hmm. and block the shot. It didn't give Haslam enough time to prep himself you know, to, to really get down in his defensive stance. It's like you said, if you're, if you're running no huddle offense, you can make these guys sit there for 15 seconds and they won't have anything, but you can also rush to the line and snap real quick before they're yeah. ready. And that's what Dirk did there. And so that's another like mind game that he's able to play is I'll, I'll beat you when you're set. I'll beat you when you're not set. I'll make you get set when you don't think you need to. And uh, he, he just, that's, that's another answer to the test that he found. Yeah, and in the game three, he almost won that game too. Um, he just tried the you know the old school Dirk. The I'm at the elbow. I'm going to spin a few times, give you a pump fake, and try and shoot around you as you fly by. And they, he just you know pushed it a little bit, and it hits the back of the rim. But that would have been there's another universe where he knocks that down, and he has two game winners in a row, <laughs> and it's just like yeah, this man is a is a freak. Um, where were you? Uh, when you watched Game Six, Game Six, I, I know where I was. I was in, uh, I was in technically Fort Worth, but it was basically like um, Denton. There's this weird stretch of 35W that runs up, and because like some airport up there, Alliance, I think, wants to be in Fort Worth city limits. So I used to like tell people like, "Yeah, I live in Fort Worth," and I'm like, "Yeah, it's 20 minutes north of downtown Fort Worth." Um, but we used to have an apartment. Me and uh, one of my best friends, my roommate from college um Wayne and I had just started dating my now wife and uh so nine years ago um and our agreement I mean we'd been friends before so she knew how much I was into basketball and you know I'm sure I told her stories about 2006 before um 
about how we that all that I'm sure just... she really cared about probably <laughs> probably not but <laughs> I don't know 2011 had a different vibe for a fan 2006 once you get to the finals I was just like yeah let's all get together and party we're in the finals like I don't even think we're supposed to be here 2011 it was like nobody invited us no one wants us here but this is the last chance so I told her you can I I watch these games alone at home like if we're ever in the finals again I'm probably going to work, but if I didn't, if I wasn't working that game, um, I would watch them alone at home, completely by myself in my living room. And so I told her, I was like, you can come over, but I'm not like going to be talking the whole time. We're not going to be having conversations. <laughs> like you can, you can be in the room if you really want to, but this is, this is it. Um, and I think she came over for like almost all the games that series. Um, and she ab- abided by the rules. Um, and I, I definitely remember game six sitting in the living room and she was there, but I, you know, it might as well have been just like, I might as well have been in Miami. Um, and yeah, I just took it in, in our apartment in Fort Worth with my wife and just uncontrollably crying and laughing once you get up by you know, whenever the moment is, whenever they show the bench and it's Haywood and Mark and all those dudes just freaking out because you know... And young Brian Grant is in there too. Yeah, BG. And they're all just like freaking out because we've gone up by so many. Um, it was probably the Dirk baseline jumper where Spolstra thinks he traveled and gave him the travel motion and Dirk starts running back with his tongue out and he's like, eh. That moment is like the moment that you're like, We've been just fighting this thing for a month, and we we beat it. We just beat it. And, uh, yeah, just tears, laughing. Definitely went out on my balcony, just started yelling, as everybody probably was at the apartment complex. It was very similar to Texas when in the um, Rose Bowl and whatever year that was. Everyone just runs out to their balcony and starts yelling. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that was uh, – it, it was. It, I'm not going to be the guy that was like, "Oh, it was just a relief to win," because you know I was. I wasn't playing. I wasn't my. I wasn't going to lose any money. My career wasn't over or anything like that. If we lost, but there was definitely. It was about half relief, half half joy. Definitely. Where were I'm you? The same. Well, I, I was at home. Uh, I'm kind of the same as you in that. For even for events that I don't really care about, but especially for games that mean something to me uh i'm not like let's go to a bar and watch it together guy uh i'm not even let's have a watch party guy uh at somebody's place with like eight of our friends if it were up to me i would watch them all alone um but in the finals it was just me and my family so me my mom my dad my sister uh the four of us watched every game together and it was like nobody's phone was in the room like nobody's friends were allowed boyfriends girlfriends whatever cousins family aunts uncles nobody was allowed it it, it turned into like a fortified bunker during (laughs) these games um because we were all we were all kind of like it's not even don't be distracted or we're like embarrassed for how we react and stuff because it, it wasn't like that but it's just this is an extremely personal experience you know because if you're, I don't even like being this guy, but 
if you're a real like fan and if you really care and if it really if it if it really means enough to you on an emotional level uh you don't want to you don't want it to be a spectacle you don't want you don't no. want to be around people this is like a personal it's a personal thing and so uh I, i'm really happy that i was at home for all of them and now there are some people that are the complete opposite of you and me and that's totally cool there were so many people that watched the game at bars or with all of their friends, and I'm sure it's like some of the most magical memories of their lives. I would love to be the guy that could go to some random bar with a hundred people and like hug a bunch of strangers, uh, or socially distance with a bunch of strangers after you win the championship, and it be like this the coolest thing ever. And go to Victory Park and like you know hold the champions newspaper up with five thousand other people and stuff. But that's that's just not me. I I, I want to watch it alone. And uh, or with, you know, with my family in that case. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, I need to be by myself so I can kind of concentrate and just sort of I'm also not like get up and yell at the TV guy either. But I just don't want I don't want anyone to talk to me or do any, anything. Just go away. Leave me alone. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's I just can't commit any other part of my mental capacity to anything else at that moment. Like, that's mm. how I see it. Like, I don't. I'm not trying to be a jerk to anybody that's trying to have a good time, but I'm just like, man, I don't have space in my head right now for a conversation, like while I'm watching this, um, because I'm just every bucket, especially in that game six. I mean, Mavs were up by ten. It was the first double digit lead they'd had in the series. Then the Heat go on a 13-0 run, and then you know Dirk isn't playing that great, and then Jet gets on the runway and the game's over but it's just i every bucket i'm just like i'm not just watching like okay the score change i'm walking i'm watching like okay we just did something jj just did something or jet just did something and what it means for the rest of this game i'm just thinking of all the storylines that could possibly come out of this like one thing that just happened right jet knocks down a ridiculous unconscious like his eyes might as well have been closed shot i'm just like Oh God, he's gonna shoot like ten more of those now, <laughs> you know? <laughs> or, or I'm like, Dirk doesn't have it. Dirk's bad the first three quarters. I'm like, but he's been good. He's been awesome in the fourth quarter, even when he had the flu. So don't worry about that, bud. Calm that one down. Calm that one down. Okay, Tyson isn't getting every rebound. You know, I'm just thinking of all these things that could possibly come out of each and every possession, where I just don't have room in my head for conversation <laughs> with somebody at that point whenever I'm watching a game like that. And that still happens sometimes in the press box. Like someone you'll see every once in a while will come up to you and we're work, we're working, we're building things and doing videos and graphics and stuff during the game. But you know, if I'm, if it's a big game, if it's a whatever, if it's against the Rockets here or a team I really don't like, or um, like you know, who Mike, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm talking about people we actually like. You're you're trying to prod something out of me. I'm talking about oh, like okay. friends that only show up every once in a while to games. Like ah. if I felt the first time Pellucci came up there, it was some big game. I don't remember what it was. And I just felt bad because I didn't really talk to him the whole time, you know? I was just like trying to be locked into the game. Um But yeah, I'm not a guy that football, for some reason for foot with football I can go to um go to a bar and hang out with people and watch it and just enjoy it because it is like a set repetition of sequences. It's like, here's your first down clock stops. Here's your second down. Here's your third down. Everybody group up and get back to the middle and do your thing. Basketball. You miss like two seconds of an important game. 
and your perception of the entire game is is wrong. Like you missed. Okay, how do you get the ball there? What happened? What what happened to this shot? What happened to this possession? And you don't have the full picture. And I want I want the whole picture. Like I'm that obsessive about basketball. <laughs> That's just how it works. Did Game Six feel? This is a very leading question. So I guess I'll hmm. just start with the statement. To me, Game Six did not feel like a normal game. In my memory, watching that, and even watching that game now, but like in the moment on June twelfth, it did not feel like a basketball game. I don't know if it was the excitement or like the fear mm-hmm. or the just it. It was not the the energy was very weird, both like within my own like person, but then also in in the actual game. It did not. Nothing about that game was typical. There was a lot of weird stuff. It just did not feel. It didn't feel normal. It's not what I thought an elimination game would feel like, but I wonder if that's what all elimination games are like, or or is that just something that's in my own head? I think it's just go, living through four to five weeks of, okay, win this one, then there's this next thing. Win this one, then there's this next thing. Okay, we lost this one. Okay, now we got to do this. It's the end of the road. It's how, and you didn't know it at the time, but like halfway through the third quarter, you're like, we might do this tonight. This might be it. So whenever there's a tomorrow of any kind or a, hey, let's get right back at it and win game seven or whatever, it, it, it's a completely different emotion. Um, whenever it's the end of a road, it feels extremely weird. Um, like even Dirk, I, thought, I was watching an interview with Dirk earlier on that road to the uh, championship thing that the NBA made, and he's just like, one of the funniest quotes, he's just like, oh, so we don't have to do this anymore right now. (laughs) Like, I don't have to go do this tomorrow. Like, I don't have to go try and take on the best athletes on earth tomorrow. Um, It almost gets to that level, and then just, you know, it was, it was probably, I know other people might think it completely different because they don't care about Dallas Mavericks basketball or just, follow the good teams or whatever. Um, but it's one of the most cinematic, like it was way more than like a, it was, it was something else in a basketball game. That's for sure. It felt like it was like a, I don't like a star Wars movie or something like something where you can't possibly be feeling all of the different storylines at the same time. So you're just sitting there trying to, your brain's trying to like buffer and remind you of all the things that have happened and all the things that are going on. It's like sometimes I'll wake up at like three or four in the morning and there's some, I'll, I'll remind myself of something I completely forgot on this one thing like two weeks ago. And your brain's just problem solving and just like buffering and just like redoing things. And I feel like whenever you lived through this um, and lived through the, you know, the other <laughs> 12 seasons of Dirk before that, um, there's just so much. Every moment brings up something, brings up a memory. It brings up a turning point from, you know, a guy that got kicked in the teeth for 12 seasons. Um, and it just stirs up different emotions that aren't usually tied to basketball. It, that just, that doesn't just hold true for Dirk either. Uh, as much as we're kind of yep. connected to him in War of the Time because we we grew up with the guy, every single player on that team had failed before. Dude, Many of them Jet had not even Kid, been in the final. Marion, yeah. 
many of them had not made it to the finals, mm-hmm. but many of them had experienced major heartbreak. Jason Kidd lost twice in the finals. Jet was on the team in 2006. Sean Marion could never quite get there with Phoenix. Injuries always sidetracked their seasons, or they lost in crazy fashion, like uh, Steve Nash getting decked against the Spurs, and then Amari mm-hmm. getting suspended, and just like so, Peja with the Kings had a title kind of. Uh, you know, uh, game seven is kind of weird, uh, mm-hmm. you know, or game six, whatever it was, you know, every single one of them had experienced such failure for so long that when the Mavericks, you know, when Dirk made this baseline shot to put them up 10 or when Dallas came away with a loose ball and Jake Kidd fed it to Dirk who drove the lane and laid it in and ran down the floor with his arms in the air and, when Miami missed a shot, J.K. got the rebound and got fouled. And as he's going to the free throw line, you have Dirk and Jed hug each other. And Tyson starts crying on the floor. All of these players are experiencing this for the first time right there with you. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure this has been the case for many teams. But I cannot think of another team that had so many veteran players who really could appreciate what this meant for themselves and for their teammates. Mm-hmm that we're all winning it for the first time together. The closest example recently would be Golden State winning in 2015 for the first time, but they were mm-hmm. all kids. They were all 25. They, they no. were like, it would have been like if the Mavs won in 2006. Exciting, but not like this spiritual <laughs> experience, you know? Mm-hmm. There, there just are not cases like this where something like that happens. And so I think just the, the, the visual and... and, and the, the visible toll that these losses had taken on them for so many years and just the unbridled joy that they were able to finally show. And, you know, the, the monkey was coming off of all their backs, not just Steve Young's back. I mean, this was a thing that they all got to got to achieve and, 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 and accomplish together. And I think that sort of um, the way that played out right in front of us for everybody to see, I mean, it, it kind of made you feel like you were like a part of them. There was this relatability to this team that you just cannot replicate with other teams because – Typically, champions aren't winning for the first time, right, mm-hmm. together. These are guys, the veterans that have won it before, superstars that have already won it before. But this was everybody's first time. And and that made it so much more uh, powerful and, and just and emotional for everybody to see. Yeah, and it's, you know, I don't want to make more of it than what it was. I mean, it's an NBA title, which is incredibly important to us. Um, it's, you know, very high on our priority list. But it's almost like, to me, Dirk and his ascent to the championship has always been, um, now it's more of an outlier than ever, right? Because of the, and it's almost like watching this moment in our culture go by where immediacy and impatience doesn't sit as like a top three to five priority in people's lives. And after that moment, it feels like, okay, now we have Twitter. Now our sports news is 24 hours. Now it's, if you don't win it your first two years, you're a, you're a failure. Um, it's, it's like the, it's a, it's the LeBron standard after that. Then it was LeBron's league, right? After that moment, it felt like it was LeBron's league. It was like, okay, here's your little title. Now it's LeBron's league. And his immediacy of three years, it doesn't work out. I'm gone. Or even if it does work out in Cleveland, I'm gone. Um, and just watching that and realizing there will probably never be 
a max player who's all first team NBA multiple times, who is an MVP that gets to grow for 11, 12 years in the same place without winning a title. I just don't think that happens anymore. I mean, maybe Damian Lillard will be the example or something because of that unique circumstance of what Portland is uh, and their culture. James um, Harden is close, but he didn't do it in one city yeah. the whole time. But, I mean, he's he's getting to that level of elite, elite player that just has not been able to deliver. Yeah, and it's you don't get that opportunity anymore in the league because your GM's got three to five years before, you know, the bill comes due on him. What have you done? Oh, cool. You made it to the semifinals tight. All right, see you. We can get somebody else. But your coach doesn't get that long a rope. Um, and so in turn, the players don't get that kind of rope. You don't get to have an incredible failure that 2006 and 2007 were and stay in the same place. You just don't have that level of loyalty. So this story... It's not just that it happened and that it's so crazy for us to experience. It's that I honestly don't think it would ever happen again. I did not feel like we would ever see that again. We would have a dude that got his teeth kicked in in the NBA Finals, got bounced in the first round, came all the way back five years later to achieve it in his 11th or 12th season or whatever it was because our society just isn't that way anymore. And in turn, our leagues, our sports aren't that way anymore. Um, so there's some dudes like that that I really, really root for. Like, I remember whenever the Packers won their Super Bowl here in Arlington, I was like, you know what? That's awesome. That's awesome for Aaron Rodgers. Like, he stayed in the same place. People didn't think he was good enough. There's just some dudes around sports that I'm like, you're not going to, there's never going to be another that guy. Because if you make that much money and you're, the hype is that much and the expectation is that much and you don't do it or you don't do the one thing that everybody can get on TV and quote, then you're a failure and that's it. And that's how society works now. That's, that's how the internet breathes. But I watched that. I was like, this will never happen again. This will never, will never be a player like this again. And it's up to all of us. And, and, you know, I think that that in recent years, I guess, it feels like collectively the public has sort of like acknowledged that that series was so meaningful and everybody's kind of doing their part to make sure that it doesn't just fade away, but it really is up to us and to Mavs fans to make sure that it doesn't become this Gangs of New York thing where, you know, the final five seconds of the movie, you just see everything change around this grave and then it's just gone. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we just moved on. And it felt like that was happening for a while. It felt like from 2012 to 2018, 2019, that it was just, it just kind of happened. Yeah, that was cool, and but it's over. But yeah. I, you know, it feels like the, maybe... The Dirk, lockout didn't help either. Yeah, for sure. The for lockout sure. didn't help, and then, okay, the lockout being the number one story, and then the the Heatles being the story for the next two or three seasons didn't help. Because yeah. no matter what, that stuff is going to do bigger numbers, right? It's like a title in New York... People remember that, but they're not going to remember, like, the Raptors. <laughs> you know yep. what I mean? Unless yep. you're a fan of that team and you experienced all of it. Um, but, so I, I just, but I think I think Dirk's 
the way he ended his career and and all that stuff mm-hmm. and i think social media helped a lot in that regard just kind of keeping him top of mind and everything feels like it's sort of like we breathe new life into that run and what it means and what that meant for dirk and and for dallas and now i mean you have your twitter casuals who really consider that like an elite championship run so it's kind of like i don't know it's like we made it you know yep. your your average basketball fan views that as one of the top achievements of this era mm-hmm. and um so it's almost like mission accomplished yeah and it, it's so different than what success stories are now right i mean the warriors warriors are a pretty cool story um once they got Durant, it didn't feel as cool or as organic or, you know, it was almost like an impatience thing. Um, but to have your story littered with so much failure because life is 80% about failure. <laughs> you're, de- you're defined by the things you can't do a lot of the times. Um, I just don't, I mean, and Luca's story might, I mean, obviously he didn't win a championship his first year. Might not win a championship his second year. When does when does the bill come due on on people? You know, whenever whenever the fan, whenever you know the NBA intelligentsia starts turning on you and says, "Ah, yeah, James Harden can't win at all. Who cares? Who cares about thirty five points a game?" You know, Dame Lillard is clearly one of the most insane athletes we've ever seen. Can't win the big thing, so who cares? You know, when does when does that narrative shift on you? And it shifted on Dirk. They, I mean, they they turned that gut on Dirk early, and he proved them all wrong. Which makes it way sweeter. He didn't have to invent slights in his head. Yeah, he, he didn't do the to, Jordan thing. Yeah, he didn't <laughs> have just to make inventing any of that enemies. Crap up, you know. Yeah, but I think my favorite thing about Dirk is and has always been that he just didn't really care about any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. It just didn't matter to him. It mattered to us. Definitely no. mattered to me how mm-hmm. he was perceived. I and mean, I remember growing up, you know, if the Mavs were on national TV and local simulcast, you know, don't hate me for this, Mark Followell, but we would always watch the national telecast to hear what they had to say about Dirk. Yeah. And, I mean, I obsessed with that stuff, and I still do. I really, like, I'm sensitive to how people talk about him, and I'm sure he is too, but he just doesn't care. He, because mm-hmm. he's he's so comfortable in who he is and and you know what what his accomplishments are and were before then and you know all he cared about was winning it for you and winning it for me he didn't care about winning it for himself and mm-hmm. that's just the that's just the most honorable quality that we could ever hope to to see in our heroes yeah and it it was a it was a it was a bright spot in in between the the Lakers the heat um and they were as good as any of those teams like i would have really loved to seen mavs heat the next season once the heat's roster is a little bit more filled out um once you have battier in there um and you know mike bibby and joel anthony aren't having to start and the heat kind of figured themselves out um but it's it'll it'll i don't think it'll ever happen again and that bums me out. That makes me a little sentimental about a guy being able to figure out his way for a decade and then deliver in that, you know, after those 10 years are up. But it's kind of how it works now, man. I mean, players move around so much. Players decide that 
I can't make it work here. I got to go somewhere else. I got to team up with my buddy because, um, you know, he won't yell at me at practice or anything like that. And it's, you know, I don't, I'm not, I don't like good old day syndrome of like, ah, these kids got it easy or anything like that. But it's just, you know, as a person, you're allowed to make mistakes. You're allowed to fail a lot. Um, because you learn from them. So that's how it works. That's that's why it's all worth it. It was a once in a lifetime thing, and we got to experience it, man. And we are yeah. we are lucky for it. Every single day, we are lucky for it. And uh, every single time those games are on, it's fun to flip them on. Mm-hmm. Anytime anybody shares a highlight, I'm always watching it. You know, yeah. I'll, I'll never get over how exciting that was and and what that meant to me and to so many people, including you, everybody listening oh, to this yeah. podcast. Uh, everybody who's ever watched a Mavs game supporting them, uh, anybody who's ever watched Dirk play, you know, mm-hmm. it, it meant so much to so many people. And uh, it was a really special thing. It was a very special thing. Yeah, it was awesome, man. Some of the some of the parade stuff they'll show tonight is pretty funny, too. And some of the, like, getting home from the plane stuff is pretty funny because, I mean, they're just, they're just cameras in their faces the entire time, and they're just, like, getting asked questions the entire time. Some of them were funny, and some of them, like, you can tell, like, they didn't sleep last night. <laughs> like, Dirk yeah. on uh, Dirk on the, the parade, he's on the stage, and I think either Coop or Mark's asking him questions, and I can just see the dude is exhausted and just, like, the doesn't know where his head level is. level is, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the blood alcohol level is, but uh, he goes, yeah, this is crazy. He's like, we we did it. You know, we reached... Reach the top of the iceberg. And I was like, that's not a phrase. <laughs> that's not a phrase that we use. But I get, I get what you're saying. Yeah. I get what you're saying, bud. He's trying. He's trying. Yeah. All right, Mike. Thank awesome. you for taking the time. This is no a very worries. long one. Normally on Mavs Plan, if, if you've never listened before, uh, normally these episodes are going to be a little shorter, but this is a special occasion. Any, yeah. Anytime you How get many titles we won? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, maybe maybe on title number five, we'll be able to keep it to fifteen minutes because we've mm-hmm. been there, done that. But yeah, in the meantime, we're uh, we're really gonna you know let this thing breathe. So uh, thank you again, Mike. Appreciate you taking the time. Thank you all for listening. Uh, if if you like this episode, check out our other stuff. You can uh, you can hit us up on uh, on on Twitter, Dallas Mavs, Instagram, anywhere. Let us know uh, what you like to hear, what you want to hear more of. He's Machine Sports. I'm Bobby Corella on Twitter. Uh, you can subscribe and please rate and review to Mavsplained on iTunes, on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Himalaya, uh, every podcast platform that you listen wherever to. Wherever you get them. Wherever you get them, this one can be found. We're coming at you every single day of the week. Thank you all very much for listening. And uh, for Mike, I am Bobby, and we will see you tomorrow on Mavsplained. Mavsplained.